Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 34, The Bear and the Maiden Bear. I'm Scatty and we have with us Brooke and Matt as always. Hello. Hi. The understated Matt, as always, uh, will be bringing to you the second set of five chapters in A Storm of Swords. That starts with Davos 1, Sansa 1, John 1, Danny 1, and Bran 1. All number ones, all trying to remind us where we left off from in the last book and where we're starting up here in A Storm of Swords. That's chapters 5 through 9 of A Storm of Swords, according to Wiki of Ice and Fire, for those of you that are counting. A uh, quick reminder, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for a special segment we call Davos After Dark. And we'll warn you with Matt's ever-present musical jingle, jingle that signals that it's starting. So we'll be looking for that. And uh, lastly, uh, it, it's great to be back Um we got a lot of great feedback through the Twitters and the emails and the Facebooks and everything. Um, thanks. Thanks for all the encouragement. Keep reaching out to us. Uh, if you want to contact us, there's lots of places to do that. Um, that's DavosFingers.com. That's our Tumblr site. Email at WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com. Twitter at DavosFingers. And on Facebook, of course. Uh, okay. Lastly, I said lastly last time, but this time really lastly, I promised my producer that I would plug the show once. Uh, I am playing Scrooge for A Christmas Carol for Salty Dinner Theater. I'm double cast. I'm only doing half of them, but you can check it out at SaltyDinnerTheater.com. It's a fun time. It's dinner and it's theater and uh, it's uh, more drama than they usually do. It's good stuff. So check it out if you're interested in the Salt Lake area uh, in December. All right. Uh, I think it's time to dive in, Brooke, but it's your episode. You got anything else for us? I'm sorry. I probably won't be making it down to Salt Lake City for your debut, but I'm sure Matt will go two, three, four, five times on my behalf. I will go that many times uh, minus four. Matt <laughs> said he's going once, promised heckling. I will go a time. Yeah, Super supportive podcast here. To heckle. He's told yeah. me he's going to heckle. Uh, heckling is my way of, of, of showing support. appreciation and love and support. Uh, should definitely no, but... also heckle Tiny Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Heckled by the gods, not enough for Brooke. <laughs> what do they call him on, uh, on Clerks 2? Crippy Boy or something? Yeah, definitely <laughs> call him a cripple. Yell it. Or from the sh- the movie Kids. Did you guys ever see the movie Kids? A long They're... time ago. I have, yeah. no I have no legs. I have no legs. No, but I will be attending at least once. To show my support for Scat. If it's good, if he does a good job, maybe I'll go again. Please don't come twice. Uh, there are a lot of people that need to see this show. It's that moving. And I don't want him to take the seat <laughs> from somebody that hasn't seen it yet. I would hate to take away that opportunity from somebody <laughs> whose life could be changed. I mean, look, it's a Christmas carol uh, and it's dinner theater. So it's there's you know there's some pieces cut out. It's like less meaty. But uh, you know what? We do a pretty it's good job. Theater? I'm proud of it. Yeah. Does that mean that you serve people as well? I don't know. He serves as he acts. Like Come on, bro! Bringing Give out me some credit. orders as he's. That's the only dinner theater I've been to where the actors are serving you as well. Oh, I I don't know how much our audience is interested, but basically we do it at restaurants. So restaurants contract out with this theater oh. company, and they have their regular serving staff there serving food, and we do a show so, around them in their environment. Oh, uh, so you gosh. won't be giving me food. <laughs> I mean, I can make an exception somehow. It'll be weird okay. for the character of Scrooge to be giving anything to anybody, but I'll see how I, know. I can fit it into my and character that's what I, somehow. Yeah, I, I would You'll really appreciate that. You'll have to break character. That. Yeah. <laughs> this... <laughs> to give Matt his chicken parm. Yeah. This... 
be crucial to my attention. To your enjoyment. I need to know. Oh, Jesus. Brooke, please find some place where we can edit all this shit out. Never. Okay, let's get going. Um... We're, we've got Davos 1 up and Scab, it's you. Yeah, unfortunately for the poor listener that's been listening to my voice, they get more of it right now. All right, ready? Here we yep. go. Eyes are crying from the onions in the hold. Save Stanny Boy, save Stanny Boy. Finger bones in a bag mean the truth will be told. Steady Davos, steady Davos. Davos is hungry. Davos is thirsty. Davos is sick. Davos is tired. Davos is depressed. He has clung to a tiny rock mound, eating what he could and sucking and slurping whatever he can from its shallow folds. Yeah, I said it. But the rock doesn't provide much sustenance. He's ready to just give in and die. But lucky for us, Davos has seen a ship. And it isn't really in Davos' nature to just give up. This is a ship where no ship should be, he exclaims, and it continues to come closer. He questions his reasons to live, coming up empty at first. He recalls that uh, his sons uh, killed dead brutally at Blackwater Bay. Uh, he recalls the battle in horror. Uh, his son's ships all wrecked, himself struggling to swim to safety under the massive chain, coming up, uh, trying to get to air, and just passing out in the middle and assuming that he'd die. Uh, truly, though, powerful writing. Um, if you read that drowning bit, you feel like you're there. I felt like I was drowning myself. It was it was very well done by by the George Meister. Uh, his loss weighing on his mind of his of his sons, Davos nearly gives in, but and, and choosing to let the ship pass pass him without without flagging it down. Even noting that maybe if he does, they'd name the rock on which he dies Onion Rock. But it's the memory of Melisander, the Red Woman, that actually snaps him out of his stupor and reminds him of his complicit nature in some of her crimes. Uh, there was something he had to do before he died, and other reasons to live as well. He remembers his king, his other sons, his wife back home. So he calls to the ship, tells them he serves Stannis, praying that it matches whom they serve. It does, and Davos is saved. And that's the end of the chapter. That was the perfect length of summary for this yeah. rather in-depth chapter of suffering thank you yeah i tried to keep it short uh <laughs> mercy you do not receive on my danny summary just to warn everyone but uh yeah there's not a whole lot going on here is there i mean it, it's um hey look davos is alive and he's barely surviving and almost insane look there's a ship look he's saved um you know but well, i mean that's exciting at least to know he's alive it's right? good to know he's alive otherwise our cast would be very ill ill-named i suppose <laughs> uh, a <laughs> character that lived yeah. through a book <laughs> one perpetual sto- spoiler <laughs> yeah right so he has he has lost his fingers so that's that's, uh... that's true i didn't note it in the summary he lost his finger bones his luck mm-hmm. as he frequently calls them it's a a valid point it also um you know, it, it underscores some things. A, a lot of these chapters, actually, I think you'll see a theme, depending on how the summaries are told, uh, through all five of these chapters, and, and maybe the last five, too. A lot of this is almost like catch-up. It's like, hey, by the way, mm-hmm. this is where we left you with these characters, and, and here's a quick uh, here's a quick reminder of some of what they stand for. Um, you definitely get that here. You definitely get it in the Danny chapter that I wrote a summary for, and... Um, I think you probably get it for all of them. Just kind of quick reminders about what these characters are about, and you know, mm. you get you get the sense that he's about king and family, um, 
you know, and 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 the sea life, right? You get various reminders of that. The the only thing I'd say that's really interesting, uh, maybe, maybe two things interesting about this chapter that that I'd like to delve into is just his reason for deciding to flag the ship down. He's he, it is Melisander, and the, and the thought of who she is, what she's done, and kind of maybe how she has her hooks into into his king that kind of snaps him out of it and makes him think he has to survive. I call it the guilt factor. I think he feels like he hasn't he hasn't done enough to ward her off to to counteract her influence. What do you guys think about that? You know, it's it's at this point in time it, it's more just like a vague blaming. Yeah. Um and and that vagueness kind of for me I I feel it more in that you know, he blames Melisandre. He blames the gods. He blames himself quite a bit. He's he's yeah. That's very... the guilt I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Survivor um, but, guilt. But you know who he has no blame for? Stannis. None. Yep. Like not even like an inkling. He like he doesn't even like think about it a little bit and then shut those thoughts away or chastise himself. They don't even enter his head. He yeah. is loyal until the end, and uh, that to me is like has he gone crazy or is he truly just a simple it's, honest i think so uh, survivor it's almost worse than that it's not just that he doesn't blame him i think that's what i mean about about the melisander stuff i think he sees stannis as a victim of melisander mm. and that he has to go right things he has to go fix them for him that he owes it to stannis to do that because he's He's under her kind of guidance now. Without him, there will be no stabilizing influence against her, and that he has to go. Yeah, he definitely sees himself as the other side of the Stannis balance beam type thing. Um, in fact, like like you guys are saying, instead of blaming Stannis, he blames himself. He takes blame that others might put on Stannis and puts it on himself. He says, one of my favorite lines in the chapter was, uh, he starts thinking of himself as a smuggler who rose above him excuse me, a smuggler who rose above himself, a fool who loved his king too much and forgot his gods. He's blaming himself for loving mm-hmm. Stannis too much. <laughs> and, and and here's another yeah. thing. Melisandre wasn't at the battle. No. So no. That, that, that blame goes, again, sort of like vaguely just overall, like maybe in his head he does know that a lot of this is Stannis's fault for his poor leadership and his poor, um, uh, you know, uh, assignment of of Florent. Florent, yeah, Florence, yeah. yeah. Uh, Stannis's pride as well, and and yeah, Melisandre is just a, a convenient foil for all of that. Yeah, I I think he blames her even though she wasn't there. Uh, she blame he blames her for he mentions the burning of the gods and how he did nothing to stop it. And how that set them on the wrong course from the beginning, right? And he he, bl- he he blames I think a lot of that on the fa- on the gods kind of turning their back on them. I think from from that act, I mean, he didn't, he didn't do enough to kind of stop her. I, oh, I, but you're I, right. I and then, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, and then and then when the ship came, he he thanked the mother for for her mercy in sending that ship. So it, yeah, I guess you're right. It does all come back to the the whole gods thing. And he, he it talks... really is interesting. The... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Skid. No, I just what you were gonna. You just a... thought you wanted to finish. It was just one specific other point that I remembered from the chapter that he he thinks of how he didn't do enough to save Maester Crescent as well, right? That mm-hmm. that she 
she took him from this world and he was a valid voice and he didn't do enough to stop it. And those are just the two kind of things that he notes, the, the, the burning of the gods thing and this thing, and that, that that's evidence of what she can do and he has to be there to counter it. That's the way I kind of took that. Right. It's it's just it's just such a there's such opposing sides. Um, Davos is so practical. Mm. He's so um, I don't want to say by the book, but he's just so uh, level headed. He's um, he doesn't have time for hokey religion and ancient weapons <laughs> stuff yeah. like that. You know, hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. Um, he doesn't have time for that kind of stuff. It's just he he needs to know how he survives because that's what he did for so long is his life was just about surviving. I just need to survive, uh, live another day, make this last smuggling run, all of that. So he's very just practical. Melisandre is not. She is very focused on magic, on all of that stuff. So obviously it's not going to sit well with him. And so that's why I think he's so opposed to her because it's just completely contradictory to everything that Davos is, right? Mm. I was surprised, this is kind of going back to the religion thing, on his focus on religion throughout the chapter. It was always about gods, 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 gods. Did you notice that? But it wasn't about, like, he talked about the sea gods, he talked about the mother. It it was almost like he didn't have a particular religion or set of gods he subscribed to. Just a higher Um, power. (laughs) Just a higher power in general. Uh, But it is interesting how it all came back there was a lot of mention of gods and religion which i think is it happens in really drastic situations you know like i know of a few people who've gone to army basic training or boot camp or whatever and all of them have said that they've never felt more religious in their lives than when they were at boot camp (laughs) you know they found god there uh, because they just were finding something to latch on to yeah i'm glad you said it out there (laughs) sorry go ahead rook I'm glad Matt said it too. He was all alone out there, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad Matt, the the religious one of the of the cast, said it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think even the religious tend to be more religious in times of drastic need. Oh sure. God, I'm in a pickle now. Can you help me? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. and uh, but but also just out of what else can you do? I mean, he's a logical guy, and he scours that little island for all of his options. And he figures out he's too weak to make the swim to anything else. And logically, there's not a whole lot he can do but ask for help. Who can you yeah. ask but the gods? And, he, you know, he's a religious guy anyway, so he tends that way. But, yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, you tend to ask for help from the gods when you need it. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, people get a lot more religious when they need help. Yep. And it's a, yeah, it's an indication of his inherent humility, too, and in that he hasn't found the gods at this time, but he's always kind of known about their Mm. overreaching power yeah well that that humility i think is a really important part of davos um and i think it's part of his turning to the gods besides the desperation aspect and it's also part of his devotion to status is that davos is desperate for a cause to latch on to he's he doesn't he's not necessarily a follower in the sense like a lapdog like Scad thinks Jamie is to Cersei. Oh, did I say that? No, but he's he's looking for a worthy cause. Do you know what I mean? Someone to latch on to who he can support and love and put his whole heart into. Uh and and he wants to do it with the gods, I think. He wants to do it with Stannis. He just wants to do it. Huh. Yeah, I, at first blush I I wouldn't say that he is like a someone who needs to follow 
just because he does make so many good decisions himself and he is such a exactly a pragmatic yep. guy but but you're right it just that's sort of like his fundamental and 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 that's the thing mm-hmm. sorry to to bring up cuz i realized i didn't express myself very well uh, davos is a great leader from what i can see and he's a natural leader uh because he cares about people and he makes good practical decisions but because of his humility it's almost like a lack of confidence in himself, a lack of self-esteem. And maybe that's part of him being the onion knight and not feeling at home amongst other highborn leaders. But uh, I, I think he's a very good leader who doesn't think he's a good leader. And usually that's what makes a good leader. Mm. It can it can be. I, I, yeah, I don't think I think he doesn't know that he doesn't lack confidence, but he doesn't lack confidence. He stands right toe to toe with a king. I mean, a self-declared king, but still a king, and tells him exactly mm-hmm. what he thinks, even when he disagrees. And it takes a lot of confidence to do that. Yeah, uh, and he's uh, go ahead. And he manages to do it very humbly too, which is one of a great quality that he has. He doesn't yeah. come off ever as belligerent. Yeah, hum- I don't think it's a lack confidence. of confidence. Humble I think confidence. it's a lack of arrogance that yeah, gives him mm. all this strength. Well, I like right? that. It's, it's, it's that he's yeah. not. Yeah, but Metallica says like arrogance and ignorance go hand in hand, so I'm not sure what to say now. Oh, and if James Hetfield said it... Gospel. Write it in the holy books. Uh, I'm confused because the only holy books I know are the album books the for Metallica. Covers. The, the liner notes. <laughs> the only the holy CD books I know. Well, they're already written in the holy books, Matt. You're just late to the party. All right, so so is it fair to say we love Davos? We're glad he's alive. We love you, Davy. Yeah, I just okay. have one quick question for you guys. How long do you think he's been on that island? It doesn't explicitly say, although it says several nights since it rained and things like that. What was the sense you guys got? A couple weeks. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of what I thought. What I A week or two. Yeah, okay. I don't think he would have survived any much longer than that. If anybody knows... Uh, if it's been said somewhere. I think it's revealed. I think he eventually finds out how long it has been since the battle. Well, you would know since you read ahead. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Don't let that one out. That's a spoiler, guys. (laughs) Yeah, you crazy. (laughs) Okay. Um, Matt, uh, Sansa. Don't know when a prince will come, but surely he's gonna come for Sansa Stark. Can't be looking like a totally and a daddy killed a wolf is Sansa Stark. So here we find Sansa worried sick over an invitation to supper that she'd just received from the seemingly sincere Marjorie Tyrell. Freshly arrived in King's Landing to a chorus of applause from the grateful small folk and who was, in effect, taking place as taking Sansa's place as Joffrey's next victim. Or, I mean, bride-to-be. So ever suspicious due to her time up until now in King's Landing, Sansa is unsure of the sincerity of Marjorie's invitation. Can you blame her? It could just be supper, or it could be something more sinister. But knowing there was really no other choice, Sansa accepts the invitation. Then she's exasperated, twitterpated, speechless, when who shows up at her door to escort her to the dinner party but Loras effing Tyrell, Sansa's number one crush, I mean, if this guy was in the Westeros version of One Direction, he would be, I don't know any of their names. Harry Styles. I was going to say, is there a Harry in yeah. One Direction? Yeah, he, he would I, be Harry Styles. 
any British boy band has to have a guy named Harry in it, I think. Hey, guess what, listeners? That was the last One Direction reference we'll ever make. We will ever do, and I apologize forever (laughs) on bended knee. Uh, So... As they stroll to dinner together, Sansa is able to carry on a polite conversation with Loras, who seems as polite, uh, chivalrous, charming as she could have ever imagined. But then she screws it all up when she inadvertently brings up Robar Royce, a former member of Renly's Kingsguard, who Loras had killed after Renly's mysterious death. Remember, Loras was also in Renly's Kingsguard. So talk of Renly seem, or talk of uh, Renly in general seems to trigger a change in Loras at that point who suddenly becomes aloof and even cold during the rest of their little walk together. So arriving at Marjorie's residence, Marjorie's all smiles and manners, seemingly overjoyed at Sansa's arrival and the prospect of getting some girl time with Sansa. And as they sit down to dinner with Marjorie's band of merry women, we are finally privileged to meet one of A Song of Ice and Fire's truly great characters, Olena Tyrell or Redwine, uh, better known to any out of her earshot as the Queen of Thorns. Sansa's taken aback by Lady Olena's abrupt and brutally honest assessment of both people and situations. And I did, you know, I won't go through everything, but I did want to point out some of my favorites, and I'd invite my castmates to chime in with some of theirs, too. I really liked where she said, speaking of eunuchs, I've never been quite sure what the point of a eunuch is. If truth be told, it seems to me they're only men with the useful bits cut off. <laughs> um, all these kings would do a deal better if they would put down their swords and listen to their mother to their mothers. Yeah, uh, that's shades of Catelyn with the uh, men only solve problems with their swords, right? Indeed. Uh, speaking of her son Mace, the Lord of Highgarden, who she compares to a pufferfish, she says, "Would that I'd been born a peasant woman with a big wooden spoon. I might have been able to beat some sense into his fat head." <laughs> Great stuff. That was great so great. Stuff. And the best part was she's like, Marjorie, what is that fish? What's the name of that fish? It puffs up. Puff fish, mother. I love that this is her family she's talking about. What did she say about her other people? Kid. Her kid. Yeah. It's her son. Yeah. Uh, anyways, after some more chit-chat, Lady Olena calls in the Tyrells' fool, a big old dude named Butterbumps, who counts as his many skills being able to lay eggs, and despite his uh, described enormous weight, he can do cartwheels and stuff. And Olena orders him to sing a big, loud body tune called The Bear and the Maiden Fair, alluding to our episode title, and we soon find out why she ordered him to sing that tune and sing it loudly. Uh, she and Marjorie want to have a private convo with Sansa, and they don't want any quote-unquote little birds hearing. And the topic of the conversation? Joffrey. What's he like, Olena asks. Will he treat Marjorie well? All of this. So upon being confronted with this topic, Sansa immediately retreats within herself, going back to her old rehearsed lines that applaud Joffrey's bravery and other non-existent qualities. The Queen of Thorns, as you can imagine, isn't buying it and continues to press, and eventually Sansa cracks, revealing Joffrey and all his horror to the two Tyrell women. The beatings, the mental abuse, making her do things like look at her father's severed and rotting head, and Sansa doesn't hold back. She tells them everything, but she's suddenly horrified as the realization dawns on her. If they call off the wedding now with this new knowledge, the Lannisters will certainly know it's because Sansa tattled. 
Uh, but not to not to worry, the Tyrell women reassure her, the wedding will still go down. In fact, they've got a surprising proposition for Sansa, moving her to Highgarden and marrying Marjorie's brother. Sansa flips, moving to the beautiful, lovely Highgarden and marrying Loras? <laughs> no, silly Sansa, not Loras. He's in the Kingsguard, you weirdo. The brother they're referring to is Willis, Marjorie's oldest brother and the heir to Highgarden. He's pretty much the opposite of Sansa's ideal, a bit older, not a knight, and he's got a crippled leg that he sustained earlier in his life. But he's got a good heart, Marjorie promises, and certainly being the Lady of Highgarden can't be that bad, right? So Sansa remains cautious, but seems to at least be considering the pros of such an arrangement as the chapter ends. Uh, fun chapter? So much fun. Yep, a blast. Yeah. We got, we got, be... it was almost like uh, the revival of Sir Courtney Penrose. <laughs> You know, they would be a lot of fun together. I'd love to see those two have a conversation. Mm. I'd also love to see her have a conversation with Dolores Ed. Mm-hmm. I think they could have some fun. I was trying to think of other dinner guests that would be fun to see with Elena. Podrick Payne would be fun. Podrick. <laughs> she would just rip he him just, to pieces. He just shit himself. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. Tormund Giant Spain. Yeah. We're going to meet later. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, yeah. They would no. have a great time He'd together. He'd probably try to steal her. It would be great. Mm-hmm. He probably would succeed. Yeah. yeah. Butterbumps yeah. is also pretty great. I mean... You liked Butterbumps? Eats an orange and spits the seeds out of his nose? That's friggin' awesome. I pictured, <laughs> I pictured like, a cartoon, you know, when, like, they shoot out your mouth as, like, a machine gun. That's what I pictured yeah. with the Butterbumps and the, the seeds. Yeah, and he apparently closes one nostril with his finger and just uh-huh. like shoots. Yeah. Like farmer blows the seeds out. Uh-huh. And apparently the ladies are loving this. I'd yes. be like, watch my dress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I love that when he's introduced, he hops up on the table and he lays an egg in front of Sansa. <laughs> but like, there's no details no. given. <laughs> Yeah. Like, is, did uh, he really just lay the like, egg? Like, is there like a split in his feathered suit? <laughs> was it up his ass? <laughs> was it really just a piece of crap? I need all of the logistics on this. Yes. <laughs> was it was it slimy? <laughs> like, yeah. George can give ever... us paragraphs of detail on the color of somebody's <laughs> eyes, and we get nothing on a man <laughs> laying evil. a fucking egg. If we ever meet George. We need to commit to that's going to be our question we're going to ask, okay? We're going to misery him? Yeah. S- screw all the RLJ and yeah. every other theory type stuff that everyone asks him. We're going to ask him, how did Butterbump lay that friggin' egg? And I'm sure he'd be more than happy to enlighten us. <laughs> May he demonstrate. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I suffered through some real serious like embarrassment by proximity hearing Sansa mm. talk about Loras. <laughs> like when she was talking to Loras, just like shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Oh, like, no, Sansa, like, stop. Like knowing what we know of that whole situation yeah. and Loras' relationship with Renly, you're just like, no, Sansa, yelling at the book, Sansa, <laughs> yeah. no, honey, no. She yeah. just kept going. Uh, she's yeah. so sweet. He, he could have handled that better, but he could have. Still a little raw. It's clear that Marjorie has been trained by Lady mm-hmm. Olena to give certain responses, and and you see it in Loras too. But he's just kind of not as good at it. 
<laughs> but I, I think I think he I, I think he actually uses I think George uses Loras to show us this is the type of they're taught how to respond to questions like this in certain ways, and we're, we're told Loras and Marjorie are similar in a lot of ways physically. I think we're meant to assume that they're a lot alike in these other ways too. They've been taught how to respond to these types of questions. Loras just maybe isn't as good at it. I mean, he didn't even remember giving her the rose. Like, you're really bad <laughs> at this, so dude. Many roses it was yeah, a he, he year ago. Well <laughs> yeah. 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 Come on. Yeah. No, they they have been well trained. That's a, that's a good point. That they're high functioning in this awful, terrible viper's nest of a royal society. And obviously that's been Olena's influence. I love that. Yeah. Um, Compare them to yeah. Sansa, right? Yeah, for sure. Like Olena's really taught them to be cunning and, and, and sharp about um, understanding the motivations behind everything that anyone says in the Red Keep. And I love how at, at some point she, she mentions that she's taught Marjorie that, uh, oh yeah, Sansa calls Joffrey Comley. Comley? I don't, how would you mm-hmm. pronounce that? Comley. Comley. Ugh, that doesn't sound right. I, Roll I've it been off the tongue. Quite a bit. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think it sounds great. Morris <laughs> well, does too. <clears throat> yeah, when I'm doing my hair in the morning, you're looking real comely today, Brooke. Look comely. <laughs> Anyways, um, when Sansa was still trying to protect herself by hiding the true nature of Joffrey, she called him comely, and Elena's like, "Surely I've taught Marjorie that there's more to." somebody than being comely and yeah. and she's right she probably has she's taught marjorie to likely understand the strategic value of anybody she comes across which mm-hmm. is great, like so valuable especially in marjorie's position marjorie is obviously thriving under that tutelage you, you and knowing this and just kind of knowing how things go in this whole game of thrones are you suspicious right now is this too good to be true for sansa She's going to be whisked away to one of the most beautiful places yeah. in all of Westeros, becoming the wife to the heir of one of the most powerful houses. And they just are seeming to do it because they like her. It seems yeah. too good to be true. I... It just feels like we've just seen this build up with like Tyrion. We saw it with Theon. Where, yeah. you know, they get that one chapter where everything's just flying high. It's going yeah. really good. They are they are inner monologuing their bright futures. <laughs> it's yeah. like the very next POV brought down hard. So Crash! yeah, except, I am I am I am leery for sure. Except she doesn't even seem to see it as like this salvation, right? I mean, I'm oh, reading that. I'm like, that sounds great, you know. But as soon as she it's finds out it's not Loras, she's like, oh, you mean he's got oh, a bum leg? That sucks. My, still, yeah. my life's yeah. shitty again. I mean, she still has her priorities, and that's calmliness. <laughs> calmliness. Calmliness, <laughs> Brooke. I just think Willis <laughs> sounds like times. a stud, and I don't know if it's a spoiler or not. I don't, I don't <sighs> think we get to know too much about him, but the guy sounds awesome. No, I fully agree <laughs> in your notes. He's like a you. super hawker and stuff like that. <laughs> it's so great. Oh, yeah, Scad was like a nice, relaxing relationship with a guy. Reading with her in a garden sounds perfect. In fact, I want it. Can I have it? And you're right. <laughs> sounds <laughs> does sound great. great. Yeah. Uh, he's rich. He'll someday be the lord. You basically just have to like order servants around and throw balls. Excellent. Well, and it's not like it would be, you know, it's not like it would be, Brooke, I think you referred to uh, a previous 
relationship, fictional relationship you might have with John, wherein he just brings you things. It wouldn't even have to be like that. It, he sounds like a smart, Rob. a smart. Oh, was it Rob? It was Rob. Yeah. Sorry. It, it would. It would. Uh, it wouldn't even have to be that. I mean, it sounds like he's intellectually stimulating. Like he's into books and stories and things like. It sounds like it could be a, a an okay deal. And she's right. just kind of like. Oh, not Loris. Oh, he's not a knight? Yeah. He's never taken his vows. On that note, how dumb is she? I mean, I like Sansa. I'm going to say it again. I didn't mean to say she's dumb, but, like, she knows the courtly rules better than anybody. It's like her life, knowing that stuff. Yeah, but she just went from a betrothal to a king to a betrothal to, like, a a lord. Like, Like, she's been raised with expectations and entitlements that it's not, it's not completely out of the realm of reasonableness that she would have been like, well, I'll think about it. No, no, I, what yeah. I'm actually referring to is the fact that she thought they were talking about Loris. Like, oh, that was, she, that was just her being a little girl, right? I guess. That was just her she with, knows like, the rules Loris of the king's the guard? I guess. Yeah. That, was, that was just a... <laughs> a, girl, a girly moment? All right. Yeah. Not being one, I'll just take it then. <laughs> take it for what it is. I'm sure there's some sort of young adolescent boy equivalent where all you've got on the brain is pretty girls. Oh uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> Anyways, how are you guys feeling about moving on? Uh well there was there was one little bit on on uh on Sander that I wanted to uh to get to. Uh she she has a brief moment where she she thinks about how she wishes he was there. Uh how she talks about how she's kept the cloak down deep in her chest. Her chest of clothes not like mm. buried in her bosom uh mm. she kind of defends him says you know he's just afraid of the fire not the battle and kind of she's got this kind of this moment where she's just kind of protective of him and uh it just so happened i was watching american beauty in the background while i was reading that chapter and there's a moment right almost right when i was reading this section uh where the character says you like him you want to have like a th- ten thousand of his babies and uh, it reminded me of, I think Sansa's, she's, she's got more, more in there for him. Yeah, that's a complicated little yep. I think it's pretty complicated. relationship. But gonna... he does fulfill some of her gallantry yeah. fantasies. He sure like... does. In, I mean, in a messed up way, right? In like a backwards. Yeah, super messed up. Yeah. But yeah, he does. Yeah. And, and, and she's starving for it, right? So she'll kind of take it, for, take it in any way she can get it, right? She's starving for that gallantry. Anyway. Yeah. It was a pretty monumental ending scene, you know, the the city burning behind them. Yep. The kiss, the yeah. Yep. I think it's just amazing that you can read and watch a movie at the same time. Yeah. Well, my but, wife was watching it and I was reading. That crap. I need full focus. Full focus. I apologize. I, I did have a professor scad too. Uh the pufferfish noted as a just kind of a joke in this chapter. Uh very lethal. The second most poisonous vertebrate in our world. Who, wow. knows, who knows how they stack up in planetos though obviously but you know always thought that they were just comical as well i didn't know they were that deadly yeah thanks professor scad yeah you're welcome all right you I've guys got it bad so bad i'm hot for teacher i'm hot for professor scad you guys in that damn picture Oh my I was God. just gonna say, if it's a scat in his Robert Baratheon costume, yes, oh <laughs> wielding an axe. That's a hammer, dude. Look closer. I think you're looking at my groin instead of the weapon. I will not deny that my eyes. My warhammer in certain places. <laughs> Look at my warhammer, not my warhammer, Matt. 
for any listeners unfamiliar, uh, if you go to DavosFingers.com, there is a picture of Scad and his lovely wife dressed up as Robert and Cersei for Halloween. And Scad is bringing it! Oh, looking good. Oh, about six six drinks in at that point. It was a good night. I love how you're like you're like doing a, a solid Robert face at the camera, <laughs> and your wife kind of like <laughs> let the team down by oh. smiling like a friendly, uh, approachable smile that Cersei would never give. <laughs> Listen, Eowyn is the sweetest. Like she's one of the sweetest people <laughs> in the her world. Downfall. <laughs> and but asking her to play a character is it's dicey. Whoa, was that an acting bird? Yeah, she's a dancer. She's you know she's got per- she's got a lot of performance quality, but like right. playing a character, it's it's you know she wants to look pretty for the camera, not play a character. Well, it and worked. it's pretty so hard for her not to look pretty for the camera. So true. Okay, uh, nice recovery. <laughs> nice recovery. <laughs> she's not listening. Let's be honest; she won't. <laughs> the only family members who do are Brooke's mom. Not even anymore. Uh, they got sick of Oh, it. she gave up. <laughs> You're going to keep doing that thing, huh? Well, we're just not going to invest anymore. Time. Yeah, it's, it's gone on way longer than I've ever committed to anything else before. So. <laughs> they weren't planning on that. All right. Uh, are you guys ready for John? Yeah. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold And the icicles bloom like the bluest rose We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf He's John Snow So John is a wildling now, having killed Corn Halfhan by Corn's orders to prove his disloyalty to the Night's Watch. Rattleshirt and his merry band, and I know you use this in your description for Elena's Mary Band. Nice. But I also had Mary Band, so I'm going to leave it in. Yes. Well done. Uh, so, yeah, Rattleshirt and his Mary Band have brought John into the wildling camp along the valley of the Milkwater River, where John gets presented to Mance Raider. But the free folk walk their talk, and John doesn't get presented to a grand court with a crowned king beyond the wall commanding from a throne. Instead, he gets ushered into a bearskin tent, warmed by peat fires, holding only six people who pretty much ignore his arrival. John immediately dismisses the pregnant woman tending cooking hens, a young couple drinking mead, and the gray-haired bard playing a lute and singing in a corner. Instead, he assumes either the broad-bearded man destroying a hen on a skewer, or the tall, good-looking, but earless man in a shirt of bronze scales studying maps is the famed Mance Raider. So when the bard finally finishes his song and the earless man finally demands to know who John is, John comes to the logical conclusion that this imposing, commanding warrior with a two-handed broadsword on his back, who can likely read because he's looking at a map, is Mance Raider, king beyond the wall, uniter of the free folk, and calls this man your grace, which makes the bearded chicken dude, John's second choice for king, laugh so hard that he chokes. Turns out, John is a dummy, and everyone has a good chuckle at his expense because it's the dismissed bard in the corner who is actually Mance Raider, which I thought was a great reveal Mm -hmm. when I first read it. 
but John is not impressed. Uh, the guy is pretty average in looks and composure and isn't wearing any sort of finery, just wool and leather. And the only thing remarkable about his appearance is a tattered black and red cloak. Mance recognizes John at once, but doesn't tell John how he knows John is uh, John Snow, the bastard of Winterfell, until he dismisses the rest of the people in the tent. So it turns out the pregnant woman is Mance's queen, Dalla. The hot blonde is his sister-in-law, Val. The dude drinking with Val is Val's boy toy, Jarl. And the two warriors are sort of Mance's generals, as it were, the Magnar of Fen and Tormund Giantsbane. So it turns out Mance has seen John twice before, once as a young crow, as Mance was a young crow, escorting an old Lord Commander to Winterfell, and again when Mance had smuggled himself into the feast honoring King Robert's visit to the north when he'd asked Ned Stark to become Hand of the King. So Mance is very gracious telling John this tale and sharing his chicken and beer. John has the guest right. But when Mance asks for the truth as to why John has turned his cloak on his black brothers, John knows he has to step lightly or he'll be just a black stain on the white snow. Ooh, good imagery. Yeah. To stall for time, he asks Mance why Mance turned his cloak in exchange for John's answer, which works well because obviously Mance loves telling the story. So Mance admits it wasn't for a crown or a woman or just a love for wilding music, which was one of John's guesses, but because once well outranging, Mance was attacked by a shadow cat, flesh and cloak all clawed up too close to death to get him back to the wall. So his black brothers brought him to a wildling village where the daughter of a healer sewed him up and nursed him back to health. She also mended his torn cloak, filling in the tatters with red silk from a sigh that had washed up on a shipwrecked trading vessel. The red silk was the most important precious treasure to the woman and she gave it to Mance as a gift. When he was well enough to return to the Shadow Tower, the commander there gave him a new all-black cloak and told Mance to burn the one with the red silk. So Mance deserted the next morning for a place where a kiss was not a crime and a man could wear any color of cloak he chose. John, in a brilliant move, gives an equally poignant and up-for-interpretation answer as to why he turned his cloak. He reminds Mance of the feast for King Robert at Winterfell, where Mance would have seen Joffrey and Marcilla and Tom and Rob and Bran and Rickon and Arya and Sansa would have seen them take their seats at the table just below the dais where the king and queen were seated. Mance remembers, so John asks him, And did you see where I was seated, Mance? Did you see where they put the bastard? And Mance Raider looks at John's face for a long moment and replies, I think we had best find you a new cloak and shakes John's hand. And that's the end of the chapter, which oh. I thought was a pretty good chapter. A pretty good intro. I love that last line by John. Did yeah. you see where they put the bastard? I got chills yeah. when I read that. John's got the, I'm a bastard thing working <laughs> really well for him here. He played that role for 14 years without a choice. And now he's playing it by choice and he's got it down. He's been yeah. off book for this role for a long time. Yeah, no, it's good. It's um, 
a good way to lie, but still reveal some of the truth. Yeah, yeah by not lying. There's there's some truth to that. Mm-hmm. So, to that mm-hmm. statement for sure. <clears throat> well look, yeah. a little a little look into the actor world for a moment, if you will. Listen to the third rate oh, actor. Please. Please take us there. Enlighten us. They tell you that the best actors put some of themselves into their role. That uh, they don't hide anything of their own life in the way they bring a role to to, to life. So uh, Hmm. in this, he's because I think early he kind of seems like an awful actor to these people. You know, like the way he's the way he's acting, it just kind of seems awful. But I think I think by bringing this truth and, and allowing part of his real frustration with his life be a part of this i think it's going to bring some realness to his role i think it's brilliant yeah do you think the cloak thing for mance was just the straw that broke his back of being ordered around and told what to do i feel like there must have been something else that made him just walk away from the black brothers to walk north into this life where you have to really scramble to survive yeah i think it sounds like he was kind of a free spirit. He, you know, he talks about he wants to go somewhere where he, where you know, one kiss isn't going to be cause for. You know, what was the the phrase that you mentioned in your summary? I'm not quoting it very well, but a uh, kiss is not a crime. A kiss is not a crime. There you go. Mm-hmm. He says in four words what would have taken me thirty. Classic Matt. Uh, I just feel like he's kind of that. He kind of had that free spirit, anyways, and he was probably a little dissatisfied with the the rigorous kind of discipline the night's watch yeah this oh. was kind of that final straw that out for him um i see this and we've talked about faith a lot you see this in religion sometimes too where people are just looking for an out and once they find it they take it and run but it's it's indicative of a longer dissatisfaction hmm. yeah i think i think um i i agree mostly with what matt said i think i think probably he had a lot of underlying dissatisfaction um so, okay, so uh, my mom. Hey, mom. She's one of those people, and there's a lot of them, that, that they'll kind of just hold their anger in. They'll just kind of hold it in and hold it in and hold it in and hold it in. And and they're even just like small little things sometimes that just kind of irk you, right? And you just kind of hold it in instead of bringing it up. There are people that do this. I'm not one of them. And eventually, eventually something, like you said, a straw that breaks the back. But it's not usually just a straw. Usually it's something that hits you on a more personal level, something that's bigger and more personal to you that the person that did it may not even understand how personal it was to you, but it hits you on a a different level and it brings up all the other crap and you you just explode like a volcano. My mom's anger when this happens is like, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of scary, you know, because she's been holding in a lot of stuff and she'll say some really blatant things, right? When normally she's like the most pleasant person around. And I think, so I think to this, you know, he tell, he doesn't just talk about the fact that the cloak was important to him. He talks about the girl that did it for him and how important the, it was the important material was. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This, this has hit him, this specific thing on an emotional level. And it was a strong enough thing for him to put, you know, to, to no longer bury the more generic frustrations with this life. It was an, it was an emotional touchstone for him that he could use to bring the rest of it to the front. I agree. Yep. Uh, is it spoiler to reveal where Mance came from? It's backstory, but it's not. It hasn't been revealed yet. I don't think it's a spoiler. No. Because no. he was a wildling mm-hmm. before he came to the wall. And so there is that sense of uh, freedom that's kind of maybe inherent in his attitudes mm-hmm. and everything. I didn't remember along that. With, 
along with a certain amount of uh, empathy, I think, too, for for wildlings, the free folk. Yeah, but at the same time, he was raised as a very young child by the Black Brothers, so he would have sure. had all of that influence as well during his most formative years. So is it just his nature that brought him that dissatisfaction? It's another, you can take uh... the kid out of the wild, but sometimes <laughs> you can't take the wild out of the kid. Um, pretty cool that uh, Corn Halfhand got some mad respect from both uh, the Magnar and Mance. Like, oh, yeah. The Magnar was like, what? This little idiot killed Corn Halfhand? He should have been mine. And Mance was like, uh, look at that guy. Yeah, that guy was amazing. Should I be mad at you that you killed him? Yeah, it sounds like their relationship's really tragic. A friendship that was kind of severed by ideals or beliefs or whatever but still yeah. that underlying respect yeah yeah it's you want that he still, still gets mentioned you wonder mm-hmm. if there was some of that uh underlying tension that i was talking about between the two that never boiled over because it was just not it just wasn't a deep enough disagreement right but that he mm-hmm. had them very much some fundamental disagreements yeah well he does say that the half hand was carved oak and mance is just made of flesh so he does yeah uh... yeah Mm-hmm. They they obviously don't see eye to eye on the whole yeah. banging chicks thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, and I gotta say, from Mance's perspective, like, the wildling life doesn't seem so bad to me. There's a bit there where John's walking through the camp, you know, and, and watching the people, and there's, you know, people that are fletching arrows, and there's kids playing, and like, you know what, this doesn't seem so bad. You know, other mm-hmm. than the cold... You know, maybe they're onto something with this whole freedom thing. You think? She did also mention, though, that they were so like scattered and had no camp defenses. That if the Black Brothers did come down them now, it would probably be like decimation. Yeah, that was like so... uh, that was like a military observation, but like a lifestyle yeah. observation. It didn't seem so bad. Yeah, he was. You definitely see the the beginnings of an appreciation for a different culture. And he's been raised to to uh, I don't know, not not hate, but to dismiss as savage. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and this is a different setting for the wildlings, right? This isn't the norm for them to be moving in this mass exodus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a wildling life in a normal village pre-exodus might have been quite pleasant, like Scan saying. I mean, the cold puts a huge damper on all of it. It's so cold. Sure. But, you know, mm-hmm. but... But uh... people live with cold. Something you can just get around. <laughs> Coming from you, I suppose we should just take that as fact. Coming, yeah, I think we've got an authority figure speaking yeah. on the subject. You guys come to Calgary enough to know how miserable it is. People just like keep on trucking. Yeah, I don't think it's that bad. No? If if Trump wins, I might come up there. That would be great. Though, at what cost? At what cost? Yeah, at a lot of big cost. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure Canada's far enough. Uh, yeah, and our new prime minister is amazing. Yeah, he seems well, awesome. He he's, yeah, he's got the potential to be amazing. Yeah, we did pretty good there. Okay, well let's uh okay let's wrap up. Let's uh, wrap up, John. John. Okay. And it's time to move on to Danny One, uh, and that's you, Scad. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go, kicking it with the dragon kids and Joe Rudy and 
she knows just where she gotta go and won't be tarrying. Look how Westerosa comes the nearest Targaryen. The sails were limp. But given Gurm's penchant for eroticism by the end of the chapter, we may not be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the wind is stopped and Danny and, and Danny's merry band. Yeah, I did it. Would have been drifting aimlessly for days if not for the fact that the two ships were galleys, two of the three ships were galleys, and pulling the bigger Balerion with much effort. Her companions varied, from the terrified Dothraki to the engaged and thrilled to be at sea, such as herself and those working the ship. But one thing they all agreed on. They love the dragons, and they have a fierce pride about being part of this journey with them. The dragons themselves, originally locked away in cages, now flourish in the open air, Viserion and Rhaegal play fighting together and Drogon off, away, hunting, always hungry, and the first to try everything. They were growing too, though still tiny, really, the size of small dogs. I would think they'd be bigger by now. Anyway, uh, as they watch the dragons play and fly around, Danny, Arston, uh, and Jorah drift into conversation. Excellent conversations about the dragons and, fam- and family, family of, of Danny mostly. Uh, here's a rundown of what she learns, a little bit bulleted. So it's hard to know how long dragons can live, uh, because Westeros knew mostly just the Targaryen dragons, and most of those died in war, so they didn't die of like old age. But Arston confirms that Balerion, the Black Dread, lived to be 200 years old. Also noted that dragons never stop growing, so long as they have food and freedom, but any sort of enclosure at all can limit them. Even a huge enclosure like the Dragon Pit in King's Landing. Uh, I think we've heard something like that before, but I, I felt like I should note it again. Um, <laughs> Arston notes that uh, in when when Jorah is doubting that dragons can keep growing and growing, uh, growing and growing, Arston notes that men are men and dragons are dragons. And uh, to note on top of that note, we learn that Jorah and Arston have a bit of a niggling rivalry. Um, we also learn that Arston isn't a man to slander. He speaks in a middling way of Ares, uh, something no one else has done in this series. Pretty much everyone considers Ares a villain. And Arston's like, eh, he wasn't so bad. Uh, he also knows a lot about Rhaegar, uh, who his squires were, how he came to want to be a warrior after reading something in his scrolls that said he had to be, that he was a great warrior and a great harpist. So Arston knows quite a bit. Uh, not sure who, who he is yet, but he knows some things. Um, he also knew that Rhaegar was able determined and deliberate, single-minded, but also that he was scholarly, especially as a youth. So, uh, at that, Belwas wakes up, and Arson has to go squire for him, the oldest squire in history. Uh, so as he leaves to attend Belwas, Jorah counsels against trusting him too much, and we're reminded how much danger Danny is really in. She has many enemies and much mystery in her life, and beyond that, she has she has three priceless assets that many people crave. So beyond all the enemies... She's got these dragons that everybody wants. And against that, she has only a handful of protectors that she can really trust. And Jorah kind of conferences her against bringing too many people in. But just on that note, the wind picks up, and her thoughts turn from worry to joy as Balerion surges forward. That night, Danny's in her cabin with her handmaids, naked, but for a blanket that she has to keep readjusting to keep it from falling off. She's feeding her dragons with a new clever trick. They char their own meat on command. Dracaris, she says, and out comes the flame. Jorah's come to visit, and ever cautious, he has a proposal that will improve her odds of achieving the Iron Throne and test the loyalty of those Illyrio Mopatis has sent. In short, use these ships and the goods inside to buy an army. Go over ground the rest of the way, since you got rid of the ships, 
and have an actual chance at success with the best warriors known to man, the Unsullied. And they do seem kind of badass. He goes on to tell a story about how they once famously defended a city with only 3,000 against uh, about 25,000 Dothraki. Um, 50,000 in the total company, but about half of them warriors. So in the end, Ser Jorah's warnings about betrayal and trust and lack of knowledge about all these people that are around her, they convince her. And so she decides to follow his plan. She bursts forth from the bed, her coverlet flying, and she dresses, her, dresses hurriedly to tell Grolio, her admiral, to change course. Jorah attacks, or pounces, or seduces. I, I don't know. He grabs her, and he kissed. He kissed her long and good, for those fans of the Sandlot out there. Not another one among us would have ever in a million years, even for a million dollars, had the guts to put the move on the lifeguard. He did. He had kissed a woman. And he had kissed her long and good. She kisses him back, though. She doesn't mean to, really. Uh, and she's reproachful immediately afterward, claiming, I'm your queen! Jorah, to his credit, is unapologetic and pushes his position further, swearing to be forever hers, a husband and a dragon rider. Holy shit, dude, slow down. It's just the first kiss. We don't get a response from Danny after that. That's just how the chapter ends. Ooh. Intense. Can you please do your impression of Danny again being reproachful? Uh, you didn't hear it the first time? No, we did. Oh, I'm, we did. Your, what... I'm your queen! Nailed that... it. Okay. I'm an actor. Yeah, I got We're taught to a... do things the same way lots yeah. of times. That was very good. I, and, and mine was more like, oh, I, I'm your queen. It probably oh, was more like that. surprised. But I, I kind of like the the indignant... Scad approach to. You're both response. way off. Okay, Brooke, we've both done ours. Give us yours. I am your queen, is what she oh, would have said. Very strong. I feel like That's mine great. wasn't that far off of yours. No? Right. Yours okay, was this, more this like flying off the handle. Brooks was like more controlled. Ready for it? I'm your queen! Oh. So, wait a minute. You made your voice more high pitched to cover what I did? <laughs> oh boy, am I going to get another acting lesson out of this? <laughs> no, do you want one? No. <laughs> you shouldn't get them from me. There are community college Arts classes that would give Arts. you much better. Uh... Okay. Um. So, yeah, Jorah Jorah's really thought about Makes this. Yeah. Really thought, well, sorry, really thought about steering them off course and towards Slaver's Bay. He, I don't think he thought so much about the kiss. Well, no, he's thought about the kiss a lot, but it, that felt very impulsive as well. Like maybe the sight of bare breasts. Yeah. Listen, you talked he's, about he's how aren't there moments as a boy where you just kind of forget that uh, that was it. That that was mm. it. It's the, the bare breasts is what does it for us. <laughs> Yeah. Did this make us thankful that Sansa didn't attack Loras with her mouth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I mean... Yeah, I mean it's no, clear Jorah's mad that she was pressed up against all his armor. And I know. Yeah. Really, I was like, ow. Yeah, <laughs> it sounded awful. Uh, but you know, she she wasn't. Uh, I don't know. I mean, okay, just like a disclaimer time. Like she's fifteen, I think now. It's all too young to be doing any of this stuff for today's world. But in her world, she's um, you know previously married, been ridden a million times. Uh, by this huge call dude she's she, sorry she liked sex she's probably 
you know, she responded in a way a woman that's missed sex probably responds. So I don't, I don't blame her for it necessarily, but I don't think she was into it at all, really. You know, no. the, the the chest yeah. plate stuff, but you know, outstanding, which would make it awful for anyone. Like, ow, you're stabbing me in a bunch of places, and not in the one that matters. Uh, outside of that, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think she was really in for it. She let it happen, maybe because. There's all these conflicting physical things going on, but yeah, she wasn't into it. I agree she was not into it. And I think that she let it linger out of a combination of things. Shock. Yeah. Also, she really loves Jorah. She is, Agreed. he's her friend and, and, and trusted advisor. So there's that, that like, trust element. Yeah. Well, like, I don't think she was really thinking about it, but it was like, it wasn't like a stranger on the street just turned sure. around and kissed her, right? Yes. Like it was. She wasn't in danger. Yeah. No. Right. Yeah. So like taking that that risk element, the danger element out of it, kind of probably made her less likely to pull back and slap immediately. Yeah. But. Um... It, it really is though. The lack of yeah. respect is what bothered her most. You can't do that. Yeah, I'm glad she brought the hammer down immediately on that because she can't really let him have feelings for her that she is not going to reciprocate. Yeah. Um, and his suggestion of being one of her many husbands, well, <laughs> a good one. I fully <laughs> approve of that version of polygamy. Just like an army of husbands to bring her stuff. <laughs> Excellent. Again with the bringing things. You have feet. Let me introduce you to them. The left and the right. The simple woman, Scad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I wish I wish that this chapter had included her her response to that suggestion. Kind of slapping him down a, a little bit harder. Yeah. Yeah. I agree a little. Uh, and, and and to your point, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything. Uh, it's I think it's coming reasonably soon enough, but um, yeah, I mean, she she kind of owes it to him not to let him go on thinking this is something that can happen. And her response right. was strong at, at the beginning, but not to have her respond in this chapter. It's it's almost like I'm not casting the blame on her. She's not like uh, uh, I don't know. She's not like doing it purposefully. I think, but not slapping him down a little bit is lead is leading him on right. Well, and who knows if she will? We just yeah, don't get it in right. this chapter. We just don't get it. Like she could do it the very next minute. Yes, but the chapter ended. Correct. At that point. That's what I mean. I'm sorry, it's not in the chapter. That's what <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else do I have? Um, Arston and Jorah. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of love it. He Arston's kind of ribbing him about uh, how he won his tournament from a woman's favor <laughs> and like. <laughs> Jorah's just kind of, he doesn't trust him. In fact, it's worse than that. You know, Arston's being kind of playful about it. Jorah's straight up trying to get and them to, like, undermining him, right? Yeah, that, that you're you're questioning Jorah, like, where these feelings that Jorah has stems from. It's 100% jealousy. Yeah. He wants yeah. to be the only one who Danny listens to. Yeah. Is he foreseeing a cock block? In... <laughs> And that, yeah. <laughs> new, new nickname for Arston. It's not just Whitebeard. It's Old Man Cockblock. <laughs> Arston Cockblock. Old Man Whitebeard Cockblock. I love it. <laughs> but, Jor you know, I, I, I do think that Jorah was a little 
hard on Arston. And, and and on my first reads, I was like, dude, just leave the guy alone. Like he's nice and helpful mm-hmm. and all these things. But I don't blame him for being super suspicious. I mean, here's this guy who seems to know a lot, yes. who's very well spoken and yes. kind and clever and intelligent and knows all these things about past kings and stuff like that. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, this big monstrous other dude wakes up and is just like, bring me food. <laughs> and the, this nice, intelligent, clever Arston is like, oh, okay, sir, here I come. Gotta go, guys. Gotta help my dude. And he runs off to help. It's like, I would be suspicious, too. Like, what is going on here? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think though, though, the combination of Illyrio sending both Strong Bellwas and Arston, plus mm-hmm. Arston's demonstration of his value in killing that manticore, mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of like, it's like we're suspicious, but Illyrio's behind it, so we'll just go with this. Yeah, you're certainly grateful for him. Yeah, and all of that, but it's like kind of the role of yeah. this guy's a squire. Mm. Mm, yeah, mm. and mm. and Danny agrees when he brings it up. Danny's like, "Yeah, that is weird." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you look at Belwas, you look at Arston. Yeah. Mm. Who's squiring for who? And, and Danny says at one point, uh, what is it? Belwas couldn't scheme his way to breakfast. <laughs> that was good. It's <laughs> kind of awesome. Like, yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, it, I think I think we're meant to think it's weird. I think I think we're meant. Right. I think this chapter calls it out. I think we're meant to think it before. Who has ever heard of a seventy-year-old or how old? How old this guy is? Squire. That doesn't happen. You're not a, well, you, if you're still a squire at that age, you retire. Like, huh? That night thing didn't work out, you know. Like, you give up. So it's hey, it's weird. Maybe, I think we're meant to think it's weird. Maybe Arson travels with Strong Bellwolves because he wants to. Because love finds a way. Scad, are you denying their love? Well, we just know that Illyrio, <laughs> I think, assigned him to Bellwolves. Don't we know that? Yeah, yeah. That, that's what that's what the story is. All right. But yeah, it's like you continue <laughs> to give a... me a hard time, Brooke. I'll take it. We have a minor pro hockey team here. It's really minor pro. It's like minors to the minors. Uh, like Matt uh, practiced here. with them a few times. Minor. Wow. <laughs> That's how minor it really is. And um, it's mostly for the kids. You know, if you are above the age of 24 and still playing in this league, um, you probably should start thinking about going to college or something like that. Yeah, right. Um, and so there was a guy who was 30 years old who was on the team. And that's what I first was like, you must really just like hockey. Yeah. You're getting paid 30 grand a year. Yeah. And like you're Kevin still Costner's playing character. in the ECHL. Yeah. It's maybe time to hang it up. Go back to school, buddy. Like Kevin Costner's character in Bull Durham. I'm like, really, dude? Catching at your age in the minors at this level? Move on. <laughs> you haven't seen Bull Durham. It's yet another example of Kevin not. Costner sports movies, really good. Kevin Costner non-sports movies, eh, usually missable. I would agree with that. I other than Waterworld, the other day and really enjoyed it. Which yeah, one? Other than oh, Robin Hood too. Robin Hood, barring great. the accent issue. Oh, yeah. I love Robin Hood. It's, it's uh, good for what it is. Yeah, I, had, for, what I yeah. for what it's supposed to be, it's no good at all. It's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for what it is, and it's good for it's one of those nostalgia movies for me. It caught me at a at a right time, and so I remember mm-hmm. it fondly always. I right. think my brother and I watched it every day after school for like three months or something. But uh, anyway, back to back to back to these wonderful books. Uh, Jorah is. We've talked a lot about Jorah in this Danny chapter, but I think he's the male cat. Everything is pessimistic. 
always looking at the downside, always worried about the risks, right? Mm. No? Well, Too far? You, need to, uh, you need to have that guy in your squad, right? And that's oh. the role he's fulfilling for Danny. It wasn't necessarily in your criticism. Very band. I was just making a comparison. Okay, that's fair. What else? Uh, uh, I think we can move on, yeah? Yes, I think so. Okay. Uh, yes. Okay, Matt, Brand, please. Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower your mind's been flying from? Your legs don't work, but they don't really need to work when that third eye's showing you new ways unexplored. And the summer's gonna come, you know it's gonna come, summer's gonna come, and boy, you're gonna fly away. So, Lost in a Wolf Dream, where he, inside of summer, is racing to the top of a high ridge, Bran comes across a pack of quote-unquote normal wolves who he refers to as his little cousins. Before confronting them, Bran slash Summer reflects on his own pack, now broken, like the Fellowship of the Ring. Five there were, with a six that, as Bran puts it, stood aside. He remembers being able to distinguish, distinguish them by the similar scent that all possessed, and he seems aware of ladies passing and the fact that there are now only five of them. Bran or yeah, Bran slash Summer. It's hard to determine who is really doing the thinking here. We'll call him Brummer. Let's call him Brummer. Uh, when whenever Bran's having a wolf dream, they're Brummer. So Brummer is yanked away from his musings by the overpowering scent of deer, fear, and blood, and he almost uncontrollably races to investigate. He comes upon the pack of wolves he noticed earlier feeding upon the carcass of a deer, and rather rudely, in my opinion. At least to my simple human intellect, Bran inserts himself into the front of the feeding line with the only resistance coming from the leader of the pack. A ferocious wolf fight ensues with the larger and younger Brummer claiming the victory. So just as uh, Brummer's beginning his feast on his newly won deer carcass, to his bitter disappointment, he's snatched out of the wolf dream by Hodor, who of course is just Hodoring away. And Bran finds himself where he was before hidden away in the vault of some old and crumbling tower. Uh, hunger, hungry and disappointed, Bran is in no mood for Jojen's perceived nitpickings, telling him he was gone for too long inside summer and chiding him for not marking the trees, something Jojen has repeatedly suggested Bran do, but which Bran seems to deem unimportant and forgets to do once he's inside summer. So to Bran's annoyance, Jojen again emphasizes that Bran and Summer are two distinct beings, with Bran being Brandon Stark, the Prince of Winterfell. For his part, Bran doesn't understand why before Jojen was always trying to get him to dream his wolf dreams, but now Jojen seems interested only in pulling him out of them. So as they're enjoying some frog stew, thanks to Mira's mad hunting skills, Jojen declares that it's finally time for them to leave the tower, which they've come to call Tumble Down Tower because of its decrepit condition. Mira disagrees, citing the tower's strategic anonymity and Bran's inability to easily travel, having only Hodor to carry him. She reveals to us, the reader, that Jojen's intention is to travel to the wall and beyond to find the three-eyed crow. Remember him? And she points out that this would be much easier if they had horses. Jojen refuses, stating that the chances of being discovered are too great, and emphatically states his position that the best way to get to their destination is slow and steady, one step at a time. 
he seems like he's he, he's in a hurry to get going, but uh, he's not in a huge hurry to arrive at the intended destination. Anyways, Bran joins in the protestations, saying that they didn't need to find the three-eyed crow when Jojen could simply teach him everything he needed to know. And Jojen here gives us a little insight into this magic business, saying that he only had green dreams, which can foretell a bit of the future, but he was not a green seer, which he believes Bran is destined to be. A green seer, he explains, are wargs that could potentially wear the skin of any beast and also look through the eyes of weirwood trees and, as he says, see the truth that lies beneath the world. He further explains that he cannot teach Bran something he himself doesn't fully comprehend, and that's why they need to get him to the wall to the three-eyed crow. Mira seems convinced and suddenly flips positions, reasoning to Bran that if they stayed at the tower, they would indeed be safe, but Bran wouldn't be learning anything. He wouldn't be progressing. So she suggests that as this is in the end about Bran's destiny more than theirs, that he should be the one to make the final call. Let the ring bearer decide. <laughs> uh, Bran weighs his options. Traveling north, but stopping short of the wall in the lands of Stark bannermen like the Umbers or Karstarks, or going south to other Stark bannermen like the Manderleys, or stay at Tumbledown Tower, where he would stay safe, but still crippled. And that's the kicker. No matter which of those options he chose, he would still be crippled. I want to fly, he decides. And then declares that he wants to travel to go see the crow. And the chapter ends. Good chapter? Uh, <laughs> good chapter. Debatable. We got some good stuff about green seers and stuff that was interesting. Yeah, you got a, um, you got a few little nuggets. Yeah. I mean, anytime you get a kid warging as a wolf, it's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. I like that name, Brummer. That's good stuff. Yeah. I'll use that. It's a really interesting relationship, this whole warging thing, because you really don't really know what what thoughts are summers what yeah. thoughts are brands it's this yeah. conglomeration they're kind of together but still separate yeah they're, it's they're really s- weird and i was gonna say it's i think that's was jojen's intention of wanting him to mark the trees is to still be able to kind of stay separate from summer and still be able to exert some control or i don't yeah, know to learn if, to learn if he can. His will yeah to see you know to push the boundaries of what he can still do as bran yeah in summer with summer acting as host to bran um for some reason it sounds dangerous to jojen that they become too much one you know what i mean yeah he still yeah. wants bran to maintain that identity of bran yeah we're we're learning a lot of cool stuff about the working um he he can taste the kill, right? Bran can taste the kill. Right. It's almost like they share the senses. Um, but it's not nourishing. It doesn't provide yeah. any sustenance. Yeah, no, that would be, really be some weird Catholic stuff. But uh, <laughs> he, he also, the wolf, like, recognizes that, that he's a prince now. When, like, well, he's not a prince. Bran's the prince. But, like, he he feels mm-hmm. like he's a prince so they like share they're sharing like identity it's it's very cool stuff man it's uh it is it's really interesting uh you know i i don't know i'm interested in how brooke feels about this yeah no really cool i i enjoy all of the children's relationships with their wolves and what that ultimately means for the starks and their their heritage and future through their wolves and but what always sticks with me in these brand chapters is how much 
does Jojen know, and how much does that yeah. affect the orders he's giving Bran? Yes, how much mm-hmm. is he, is he hiding anything? Yeah, I feel it almost feels like he's he's just feeding it to him slowly, you know, mm-hmm. like laying down the M and M's in a path through the forest, yeah. so that he kind of follows. Jojen yeah. is is a, is a good is a good person to have uh, visions of the future because he does take them with a grain of salt and does understand that the meaning can be lost in the interpretation. Mm-hmm. But that yeah. being so, but for all of his wisdom, he still knows without a doubt that what he sees comes to comes to pass. So how does that affect? You know, how much does he think Bran needs to know? How much? Yeah, there's just so much. What if? What if? What if? Mm-hmm. And and is and Jojen's still a kid. Is he, is he doing the right thing? Yeah, he's yet another example of a kid in the series that isn't really a kid. You know, he he's he seems well beyond his kidliness in in his yeah. wisdom and and you know they even call him little grandfather right because he seems older, he seems wiser. But yeah, how, how much does he know? How much is he feeding Bran of what he knows? Yeah, I and you I, have I think to wonder if. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Please well, go ahead. I, I was I was going to go a little bit a little bit further, maybe a slightly off topic, but it, he's he's I don't think he's hiding anything damaging. But again, that's really in the eye of the eye of the beholder. But he's he's honest enough about this. Like like if he really wanted to mislead Bran, he wouldn't be saying things like "I'm not a good enough teacher." He'd be saying things like. Yeah, I know everything. I can tell you everything I need I to know. I know it all. Yeah. yeah. Instead, he's like, I, you know, unlike the dumbass guy that tried to teach you about acting an hour ago, he's saying, like, <laughs> I don't know this stuff, really. I'm faking it a little bit. I know what I dreamed, but, you know, my whole goal in this thing was to get you to open that third eye, and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I know the rest, right? It's very honest. That's what I was going to say, too, is I think he's, he's you know, sometimes we wonder if he's kind of, if there's some sort of other motivation going on there where he's keeping things from him purposefully or something. And and I think it might just be like you're saying, Scott, it's just honesty that he, maybe he's a little unsure himself, Jojen is, because he is still a kid, you know, and he is a wise kid, but he is still a kid. And there could still be some of that uncertainty and, and things like that that are holding him back from revealing maybe other things that he has dreamed but he's unsure about and stuff like that uh <laughs> oh woo. good chapter, chapter. yeah, yeah. <laughs> one cool uh, wolf fight one more little uh, little cool thing about the wolves um i thought it was interesting unless it really is just uh brand feeding into summer but i thought it was interesting that summer also thinks of ghost as different right He's like, oh, and, and the other part. one off the bastard, off to the side. That's mm. that's yeah. different than us. He's one of us, but he's not really one of us. It's a, it's the bastard relationship inflicted in the wolf world too. It's interesting. Yeah, that is cool. Okay, okay, executive decision. We're moving on. Oh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to move on to Davos After Dark. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, this is where we enter the spoilery part of our program. So from here on out, we will be spoiling for all of the books. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. If you will be leaving us now, uh, in two weeks, we will have episode 35 with Davos 2, Jamie 2, Tyrion 2, Arya 2, and Catelyn 2. Uh, and that's chapters... Oof. 10 to 14, according to a wiki of ice and fire. 
If you liked the musical jingles that separate our chapter discussions, please know that they are all written and performed by our very own talented Matt and are available for download via Bandcamp. So if you go to DavosFingers.com, we have a link there. You can download the songs for free or if you like to give a little dollar to the podcast. We sincerely appreciate your support and thank everybody who has downloaded and supported us thus far. Davos after dark. I think, Scott, this was you who answered, who asked a good question. What if Sansa had gone with Sandor? I think that was Matt. I don't think we actually talked about this when it happened, but... So Sanders' main goal, as he as we see him later uh, in this book, is to basically ransom Arya Stark off for money. Right? He finds her and he's like, "Oh, cool! Let's get some money." I th- I think he might have done the same thing if he'd have had Sansa in his back pocket. He'd have just gone for for uh, for River Run and tried to go with the ransom strategy. No. I don't know if his feelings for her would have prevented that or changed that outcome. Might have. I just feel like yeah. he's too much of a realist. He'd have been like, oh, yeah. this isn't going to work out for me. This is not. Actually, now, maybe... that you, now that you present it, I buy that. He would have. Well, maybe he takes her to River Run and then he tries to maybe Sticks get a ransom or maybe just tries to get a job. Maybe, you know, maybe. Yeah. Stick around River Run. He's certainly going to be hunted by the Lannisters or maybe not hunted, but he's not going to be. Uh, welcome in Lannister lands. Oh, and, yeah, that's uh, true. If any yeah. found him around the roads, they wouldn't be very pleased with him, probably. Probably true. So he might look to take up with the with the Tollys, a good house, and <gasps> he's got Sansa, who he obviously has feelings oh, for yeah. around him. No, it would have been cool if he got a new helm, but it was a wolf helm. Like, he had replaced her wolf. Wouldn't that have been romantic? Instead of a, a helm, wolf with he could... a trout in its yeah. mouth. Instead <laughs> oh, of a helm, yeah, he could just use Grey Wind's yeah. head. Oh, too soon? Oh, man. Yeah, too yeah, soon? Too oh, soon. Sorry. No. But instead of Joffrey's dog, he would have been Sansa's wolf. And I think yeah. he would have been, like... Oh. Could she call him Lady? And <laughs> she would call him Lady, of course. <laughs> yes. Give him a dress, oh, let him curtsy. Circle. <laughs> full circle. That's a good full circle. I like that headcanon. So the producer of my sure. theater company calls that a reach-around. And I'm like, Mary, that that's not a reach around. That's a callback think... or <laughs> reach around means something different. Yeah, I keep telling her this. Like a reach backward around? I yeah, like know. if we throw a joke in at the beginning of the show and then like we make a similar related joke at the end of the show, she's like, Yeah, it's a reach around. No, yeah, Mary. It isn't. It is it is not a reach around, Mary. Wow. Yeah. Oh man. It's awful. Oh, I hope my subconscious doesn't adopt that and I actually use that in real life. <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> and I hope someone records it and it goes on YouTube. <laughs> what also would have been nice is if uh, the scheme to get Sansa to Highgarden married a Willis and then you know have access to the Northern Lands uh, hadn't been foiled and had actually gone through. That would have been great. Yeah. Yeah, I I, uh, I think it was proposed. Like, is this just a ploy? Uh, I don't know. I I think I think maybe I don't know. I, I hesitate to to give anyone too much uh, credit for having empathy in this series, but I, I think maybe the the Tyrells see Sansa as a somewhat empathetic character, and they want to get her out of there and get her safe. And 
oh yeah, by the way, we also might get Winterfell out of the deal. Oh yeah, no, that was her. There was no like altruistic motivations. There it was always for what Sansa stood for. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, keep in mind there's still Rob at this point. Um, you know, but anyway, yeah. yeah, yeah, but but it doesn't matter. Littlefinger would have never let that happen. Yeah, <laughs> little thing and a little thing. Yeah, and that's where that whole the whole planning gets weird, and I'm I'm yes. anxious to find out. You know at where it happened. I've got my own ideas. I think maybe Littlefinger said like when he was talking to the Tyrells in the first place about Joffrey. Mm-hmm. He kind of maybe said, "Listen, Joffrey's a monster. He yeah. sucks. Did he sow that seed? Yeah. And I've got I've got a way to get rid of him. Um, just go with me on this. Uh, maybe he says there's a poison. It's going to be in a hairnet and stuff like that. But and they said okay. Um, I think maybe that's where it stopped. I don't think Elena like planned to, for Sansa to be blamed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if she knew Sansa was going to be the one in the hairnet before the wedding um, or what. But yeah, it's just really weird. Like, did Olena know that Sansa was going to be wearing the hairnet? And did yeah. she plan on the, the blame falling on Sansa uh, or what? It's really weird to figure out where that starts and stops for me. Yeah, the whole the whole thing seemed a little thick, a little syrupy, a little uh dextrosy. Uh <laughs> with with uh Marjorie like I don't think she actually says sisters in there anywhere, but, but but like we'll be best friends. You'll come down there and I'll be there sometimes and that's my Marjorie Brooke if you want to have me it's reproduce good. it later. Um it, it just seems it's it's too much. Your training is your training is too good. You need to go back to Dagobah and finish it up. Um, you know, she, it's, it's, I don't, she's got, first of all, it's underscored by the fact that she, how many women do they list off that are already at this feast? She can't pick a best mm-hmm. friend out of those 50 people. She got, you know, she's laying it on pretty thick for Sansa about how, you know, how great it would be. And I don't know. Um, you know, I think that Marjorie does actually appreciate the company of interesting people. I mean, through what, what does she know about Sansa to think she's interesting? Um, well, she's I think of she a is. level with Marjorie. Like, it's like why actors marry other actors. She's at an right? age they... with Sansa. I don't... Go ahead. She's a little older. Yeah. And she's been married, so... But but they're both, like, first daughters of really high houses. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, that's true. I think that helps. Like, like, Sansa wouldn't bed warm for Marjorie, which is what all these other women are doing. She would be an equal... But I don't think it's crazy that Marjorie would be excited that they would be friends. Yeah, maybe. It seems like she's just laying mm. it on a little thick. I think she understands Sansa. I think she understands what Sansa wants to hear and things like that. And, and she might even be pleased at the prospect of having a cool sister-in-law. But I think her primary motivation is helping out the family and getting a foot into Winterfell, perhaps. Or maybe is Willis just such a hard sell that they're doing everything they can to get him a wife. <laughs> I mean, he seems like a cool dude know. to me, but they make this leg injury seem like it's a deal killer. Yeah, it's it's pretty apparent that you would slip into that position in a heartbeat. That's another thing that I would... You your entire family uh... behind Mary Willis and be the Lady of Highgarden. Very yeah, clear. Thank you. That's Dan. another. That's another very interesting side of all of this, the fact that Willis isn't married yet. 
There have been they're waiting for something better. Right? Exactly. They're waiting for the right thing. I don't think it's because they can't get uh, Willis married. I think it's because they were looking for the right person to marry him to. Look, Willis, you got to really sell this leg thing. We can't have you marry anybody yet. (laughs) Right. Because this high garden thing, that's a big deal. And people have arranged marriages for lesser houses. Sure. uh, Stuff like that. So. Yeah, I think it's more of they're trying to find the right person. Um, Willis. Who can help benefit, advance, advance can, the Tyrell stuff. Can you walk in a limp? We, we'd <laughs> like to have you limp. He probably really isn't even crippled. Yeah. He's probably faking it. He's just quite bookish. <laughs> so, well, she, well, Sansa is Elaine Stone in the Vale. Um, and is acting as Littlefinger's bastard daughter. She has like a similar interaction with another knight that she just had with Loras, Harry the Hare, who uh, is... Did you say hair? Is, is this a Canadianism? <laughs> no, it's probably just because I read it. <laughs> All right. Harry the Air. All right. Harry, is that better? Yeah. Harry the Air. <laughs> I'm going to call him Harry the I mean, Air. I bet his hair is phenomenal. <laughs> Like Harry from top to bottom. Wait, that band that we said we wouldn't mention anymore. Yeah, don't. <laughs> shh, shh, no. And uh, and who is very insulted that he's being set up with a bastard-born lady, um, and is quite rude to her and just like dismissive and stuff. And instead of being flustered and awkward like she was with Loras, Littlefinger kind of takes her aside and is like listen, you've got the upper hand here. You just need to turn on the charm. This is what you're going to say, and this is how it's going to go. Yeah. And she does, and it's magnificent. Yeah. And I think she she feels a little bit of freedom because, you know, bastard-born are, are reportedly lustful and, and wicked, and so she kind of, like, channels a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just it's it's a good example of a, a strong character development. Character development, and that's spoiler on spoiler. I think that's actually nice. from the Winds of Winter chapter, isn't it? Oh yeah, it I is. think it is. Yeah, just in case Which anyone wasn't reading those, you now know what happens no. in that chapter. <laughs> so I've been so for the listeners, I've been doing my homework and reading ahead during our break, and I finished Dance with Dragons, and then I read with, I read all of the sample chapters. Jeez. Now I'm reading The Adventures of Duncan Egg, which is so good. I had no idea. Isn't it great? It's so I told great. Told you guys, Night of the Seven Kingdoms is wonderful storytelling. I yeah. Am, I am in last place on my knowledge here. This, yeah. This is, it's it's really just, it's, it's, because so much of the whole A Song of Ice and Fire series is just talking about a better age yeah. before, like, the rebellion and the usurper and everything. It presumes a bunch of history. Yeah, <laughs> and you hear about all this history yeah. and how great it all was, yeah. but now this this story actually happens within that history, and it's nice to see a Westeros that isn't war-ravaged as well. And it's told from the POV of such a wonderful character. Ah, oh, so great. All right, so Duncan guys. Natal is wonderful. I don't want to know too much. I'm still planning to read it at some point. Yeah. We're just setting it up. We're not right. giving away. I'm, I'm not really spoiled. Sold. It's a single POV. And that's it. Yeah, that's another thing is that <laughs> you, that is really refreshing too is that you know how sometimes you'll like get into a chapter and you'll be reading and you'll yeah. be like oh, yeah, super like invested and then it ends ripped away. 
Yeah. 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 Oh, that second castle, looked it up, is snow. Ah. Just captured on the recording. (laughs) We've been called out for our lack of intimate knowledge of these books before, so with full Uh. admittal that we looked it up on Wiki of Ice and Fire, it is snow. We don't have that castle committed to memory. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Oh, boy. That really gets me. You know what? Criticize our knowledge of the books. I really care a lot. (laughs) No, you're a better person than I. It does get to me. Oh, really? Yeah. It used to bother me. I've grown more callous. The pronunciation thing doesn't bother me. But the the knowledge thing, yeah, when they call us out on that, yeah, it bothers me. We should know our shit. But anyway, moving on. Um, I've been fairly clear from the beginning that I do not know my shit. So <laughs> if you're not feeling that, you don't have to listen. Yeah, I don't think the point of our podcast is to be an encyclopedia of knowledge. It's nice to be, and we certainly try hard, I think. Mm-hmm. I think all of us yeah. try hard to, mm-hmm. to be as knowledgeable as we can. Listen, but, uh... put, us against, put us against the Radio Westeroses and the Steven Sasses and all those oh, guys. Yeah, I'm so glad they exist, though. We're screwed. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we need to be on that level. But, yeah, you know, we should tell our stuff some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Listen, the second that memorizing places and names interferes with my enjoyment of the story is when enough. I stop memorizing places and fair, places. Fair enough. Not the point of our cast. I agree. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Okay. The cast is to have fun. <laughs> Anyways. <I'm> not... <laughs> and to insult each other. Yes, which I, is fun. fun. I thought yeah. we were just building a strong relationship between the three of us. We are. That's how we do it. Oh. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, so Davos, as far as we know, right now, he is still a captive of the Malisters. Oh, great example of not knowing your stuff. Anyways... It's mentioned that Davos was meant to die at sea. Do you think Gurm will give him that? Yeah, well, well, Davos says that about himself. Do you think uh, we'll was... reach around back to <laughs> this, this time where he almost did die at Listen, sea? if anyone in Westeros is deserving a fucking reach around, it's Davos. <laughs> Alright? So uh, Davos says that about himself, that he's meant to die at sea. Um... I think that that was the the fact that that was actually said aloud or thought aloud instantly cancels out the possibility. <laughs> George is like Kerm, that ain't gonna happen. Kerm is like not into yeah. fulfilling yeah. self prophecies. I guess I don't know. Yeah, Davos Dom- I... is one of the few characters I, I just don't want to die. I just don't want him to right. die. He'll, he'll end up burning that, in some sort of. Yeah. That being said, I think he is going to die. Yeah, probably. Fire. Yeah, so when the, I mean, what we know about Davos is that he's supposedly out looking for Rickon, right? I, I think that's the last we hear. Um, oh, that's right. He and, was really... and uh, yeah, I, I don't. I certainly don't want him to die at sea on the way to Skagos looking for Rickon. Uh, I certainly don't want him to die on the way back with Rickon, assuming he finds him. Um, so I hope he doesn't die at sea because I imagine he'll die on land, <laughs> doing something noble uh, to help Stannis. But. Yeah, I I don't think Davos is going to get his wish to die at sea, nor a wish to go see the rest of his family uh, back in, uh, what is it, Rain, the Rainwood? Yeah, Yeah. what will be really tragic is I've got this headcanon, I think we've talked about it before, that Stannis is going to go bad Mm -hmm. in the end. And that would be really tragic if he killed Davos. Ooh, 
That would be awful. How would that be? Matt, I don't want to think about that. Sweet dreams, guys. Good night. <laughs> yeah, I do kind of agree that the the loyalty to Stannis is going It'll to be, be Davos undoing. Yeah. 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 Um, any other points that you guys want to talk about in particular? Yeah. Nope. Good. All right. Let's let's wrap this up. Uh, this is Brooke signing off, saying thank you very much for joining us tonight. And just imagine here, I've just sung the full refrain of The Bear and the Maiden Fair, but instead I've said The Bear and the Maiden Bear for every <laughs> verse. Imagine that. Nice. It's amazing. Accompanying lute. Beautiful. Beautiful. Good night. Well, I think the end of our the, the closeout music is definitely going to be The Bear and the Maiden Fair by The Hold Steady. They do a wonderful version of the song. Oh, so great. <clears throat> it'll be it'll be fitting. Uh, this is Matt signing off, uh, thanking you for listening to our podcast, Will you, where you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> <sighs> Except most Eisley. Uh, this is Scad signing off, uh, saying that if ever in the presence of a man who breaks wind and it's smelling like a rose, just run because you're in the presence of the Tyrells. It's no good. Good advice. Sage. Good night, everybody. All right, night. There was a bear bear. All rocking brown and covered in hair. Three boys and girls and a dancing bear. They danced the spun right to the fair. Oh, sweet she was and pure. Okay, well, uh, shall we uh, get podcasting then? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think I think we're good to go. Uh, I do. <laughs> I want to warn you, my Danny summary uh, is long. There's kind of a lot you learn in that chapter. Um, but I also wrote it an hour ago because somehow I was under the impression that I was covering Bran. Oh, whoops. <laughs> and I luckily <laughs> looked at the notes and it's like my name was on it. Did so... you write up a Bran summary too? Oh yeah, I have it. It's here. <laughs> why don't Why don't we do both? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've, I've now got Matt's brand summary, <laughs> now Scad's brand summary, and yeah. then we'll compare them. We'll have a vote. We'll do a Twitter poll. Whose was better? Well, I'm reviewing my brand now, and I didn't have anything clever in it except for a brief Eminem reference. Yeah. Uh, so, and we've fulfilled our Eminem references uh, forever. We have with just the last with episode. The one, B- Brooke. Awesome episode title. Yeah. It might be the My best gosh, one we've this had. This one's going down. Yeah. Yeah. I'm awesome. sorry for the pun, but I I thought of it and I was like, oh no, I'm not going to give into this bullshit. And then I couldn't think of anything that even came nope. close. It's so amazing. Because it works wonderful. on so many levels. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. It's Absolutely amazing. Brilliant. It's maybe Thanks. the best episode title we've had. I'm jealous. It's amazing. <laughs> That's a brilliant episode. It wrote itself. Man, Skype. Uh, I could fill a ledger with my complaints. You know, we would get really good sound quality if the uh, if Brooke just moved down and we just met together in the flesh. I know that you're being like jokey and pokey (laughs) about this. You're absolutely right. The sound quality could be so good. We could build ourselves like a little closet studio. Yeah, I know. It would be amazing. Yeah. Just sit around the table. We could read <gasps> so much from each 
each other's facial expressions. That would be so much fun too, because we'd be like know. high five when we made fun of Scad. Mm. I hate you. I hate you both. <laughs> you just, just in the same. studio blaring a little troll. Arms folded. <laughs> Is my camera on? How do you guys know I'm doing this? <laughs> Holy crap. You guys, I was holding that in from uh, the very beginning of the If You Want to Contact Us segment. Uh, okay. You change your pants or something? <sighs> it's just a sneeze, Matt. Just really a sneeze. Uh, that was amazing. I hope you were on a rolling chair and it, like, comically rolled backwards. <laughs> that would be something something, <laughs> something out, of, uh, out, of, out of a comic book or something. Uh, no, it did not happen.